Hello, Dancewell listeners. This is co-host Ellie Kushner. And before I proceed with this important episode on pain with Dr. Marshall Hagens, I want to take two minutes for some fundraiser shout-outs. The first person I want to thank for her donation to our GoFundMe campaign is Elizabeth Sullivan. Elizabeth Sullivan has been featured on two episodes of Dancewell Podcast, and I want to tell you about a great talk that she has, which teaches mental fitness tools. It's called Building a Better Dancer, Essential Strategies Dancers Need to Succeed in Pre-Professional Dance Training. Dancers learn to control negative self-talk, stop self-sabotaging, and manage their mental health distractions in the studio and on stage. This talk is free of charge, so if you'd like to have her come to your school, just send an email at easul at gmail.com. That's E-A-S-U-L-L at gmail.com. She's also accepting new clients into her one-on-one coaching program this fall. Fill out an application on her website to see if you'd be a good match for working together. Spaces are limited, so apply now. www.easullivan.com The next person I want to thank for her donation to our GoFundMe campaign is Peggy Wallenhart, who has an upcoming Pilates training I want you to know about. The program is called Spring Inside Mentorship and Training, and it consists of 120 hours of coursework, private movement sessions, mentoring sessions, observations, small group meetups, and independent study over the course of an entire year. I worked for Peggy for many years, so I can personally speak to her remarkable skills as an insightful teacher and a caring mentor. If you're a certified Pilates teacher looking to up your game, email her at Peggy at the-spring-inside.com. On our website, you can find links to both of these valuable learning experiences, as well as more information about our fundraising campaign. Visit us at www.dancewellpodcast.com. And now, on with this episode. Hi, this is Ellie Kushner from Dancewell Podcast, and today I'm sitting with Dr. Marshall Hagens, and we're going to talk about pain. And um, Marshall has been the physical therapist for the Mark Morris Dance Group for over 25 years. He attended North Carolina School for the Arts as a ballet major before moving to New York, where he danced both on and off Broadway. Leaving dance, he got his BS in physical therapy and a master's and PhD in biomechanics and ergonomics from New York University and a second doctorate degree from the University of St. Augustine in manual physical therapy. Dr. Hagens is emeritus professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at Long Island University. He's taught there for over 20 years, and he's a senior clinical research associate at Harkness Center for Dance Injuries in Manhattan and a board-certified clinical specialist in orthopedics by the American Physical Therapy Association. Dr. Hagens has worked with members of New York City Ballet, American Ballet Theater, Merce Cunningham, and many others, and he's toured as a PT internationally with um, many companies, including the White Oak Dance Project, led by Mikhail Baryshnikov. He's published over 35 papers in peer-reviewed journals in the areas of dance medicine, sports injuries, ergonomics, and alternative medicine, specifically yoga, and his current research focuses on spinal asymmetry. So thank you so much for being here today to talk about pain. This is such an important topic for a variety of reasons. Societally, you know, we have this massive opioid epidemic happening. Um, so there's this larger social 
issue. Um, then of course there's just the misery of pain <laughs> and right. missed work that comes from pain and things like that. So could you start by just talking to us about pain, giving us the basics? Um, how is pain communicated from the body to the brain? How is it interpreted at the brain? Um, and what's that sort of brain-body connection where pain is concerned? Sure. <clears throat> I, th I think the biggest misconception that people have is that uh, if you stub your toe mild, moderate, or a lot, you'll have pain, which is mild, moderate, or a lot. It's just not true. Uh, pain is a perception that's created in the brain. Um, it's, you have all these inputs that go to the brain. The brain is busy most of the time ignoring information, but... <laughs> Uh, that's most of the work of the brain because it has all these inputs. But <clears throat> So what the brain is trying to do when you experience pain, it's taking and selectively deciding which of these inputs are important to give you a danger signal. So I would say the way to, the, the, a better way to conceptualize pain is that it is a danger signal. Mm -hmm. The brain is perceiving something through multiple inputs. So not only uh, the sensation from your skin or whatever body part, but it also is influenced by your thoughts, your beliefs, your feelings, uh, the environmental context of that moment. So pain is a perception created by the brain. It's not necessarily something that's directly uh, congruent with the amount of tissue damage you have. Mm -hmm. So that's almost the most important piece that like tissue damage and pain are, are not directly correlated. And so you're saying that pain is a yeah perception of threat. And it's I mean, is it safe to say it's like, it is a message, it's, it, it's a sign that something maybe want, should be addressed or that something's going on? It's a sign that the brain is saying to you, pay attention, something is threatening. Uh -huh. The reality, as we know many times in our own lives, when <clears throat> we believe that something is dangerous and ends up not being dangerous, we've misperceived it. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we've a read... A shadow isn't a lurking... A yeah, it's not a snake person. in the grass right, right. or whatever, right. So pain is the same way. It can be a misperception. Uh -huh. Yeah, that's true. And are, do you want to talk at all about um, how our knowledge of pain has evolved recently, like old models versus new models? Well, I think the biggest thing is that, uh, you know, you have this Descartes idea of the one-one relationship of pain to tissue damage is changing, and now we have these psychological constructs. And so uh, what we're finding now is that if many types of pain, uh, several things, one is that people are beginning to differentiate pain at the clinical level as a physical therapist. So part, part of what I'm doing, when people come in and say I have a pain in the big toe or the knee, you know, I have to differentiate. Is that coming from tissue damage or sensory input, which would be a nociceptive pain, what we call nociceptive pain, is it, if it's tingling or numbness or paresthesia, loss of sensation, you know, I might think of that as a neuropathic pain. If it's a diffuse pain, people come and say, well, I seem to hurt all over and I have multiple pains in different locations and those locations change. I'm thinking that pain is a, a different sort of animal. That's a central sensitization pain. So uh, part of the knowledge that's coming down is, <clears throat> is that pain is a perception. The second thing I think that's big is that we have to differentiate different kinds of pain. Um, Anytime people have a pain that lasts more than three months, uh, you're almost certain that there is a, uh, a psychological piece to it. And by psychological, I don't mean <clears throat> they're hung up on pain or they have some perversity or some problem. Just that the inputs uh, into that perception of pain uh, extend more than just the uh, tissue damage. There's something else going on. Tissue heals. Unless there's a reason it's not healing that you should be able to discern, tissue heals certainly by 12 weeks. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
What is what remain? What do we still <clears throat> not know about pain? Uh, it's hard to know what you don't know. <laughs> like, yeah, it's like the unknown. <laughs> the, the, the known unknowns. And I, I don't. I don't know if I can really answer that question. I think. Um, you know, I'm probably not, I'm not a pain expert. I'm, the, there are probably pain experts who could really answer that a little better than I at the forefront of research. From a clinician point of view, what I, I guess the way I would answer that is, what we don't know is it's more about what we know already that we're not using. And we know a lot of information that we're not using to help mm. patients. Um, <clears throat> primarily that we educate patients in the right way about pain that we make sure that they understand more about the nervous system, they understand how the nervous system can upregulate or downregulate. And by that I mean inhibit or facilitate, sort of uh, increase or decrease the level of pain. Um, and I don't mean from a psychological standpoint, although that's true as well. I mean literally within the nerves themselves. Mm -hmm. So the threshold for firing a nerve can be lowered such that what used to not fire the nerve now fires the nerve. It's as though you set your alarm system on your house so high right, right. that the that wind is, is going to set it off. And yeah. you're constantly calling the fire department. So people, people can get in that state themselves. Uh, and you've seen these people. You know these people. You've treated them. Uh, or you felt it yourself yeah. when you're sort of jacked up. And yeah. your autonomic nervous system is out of whack. And you're constantly on alert. A lot of cortisol flowing, flowing a lot of adrenaline flowing. And so everything appears as a threat. Your spouse says, oh, hello, dear, and suddenly uh, you're What's arguing. What's your tone? <laughs> Watch your tone. So those kind of states can absolutely increase pain. Uh -huh. So in terms of your question, I, you know, I don't really know. I think for me the emphasis is how do you take what is known and apply it better? Yeah. And that's what you're working on now with this. Um, so you're working with these like new models, one of which is this therapeutic neuroscience education of really educating patients about pain as part of their treatment. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, again, if, if, if as a clinician and even as a person, if you, if you can have a little education about what's happening, what, what they've shown with therapeutic neuroscience education, and, and this education may occur with different kinds of titles or names, but I think uh, increasingly this is a, a good title and it's being used a lot, TNE, Therapeutic Neuroscience Education. What they've shown in several studies is that a patient comes in, they're quite upset, they, they're, they're miserable, they've had pain for several months. Everyone has talked to them, for example, oh, you seem to have a disc bulge at L4. Uh, you, you, know, you have a little arthritis in your lumbar spine. You know, we think this is the cause of your problem. Oh, your sacrum is out. I'm not quite sure where the sacrum goes when it's out. But apparently the sacrum does get out a lot. Uh, that, so these mechanical models, and I'm a mechanical guy. I, you know, manual therapy is what I'm trained in, and I do it. But when you let the mechanical model outpace its true ability to predict pain, you do a disservice to the patient. So, you, <clears throat> so this patient comes in and you're telling and you're trying to explain everything in a mechanical model as though if you only anteriorly tilted the pelvis one more degree or one degree back, <clears throat> in those cases I think a lot of times what you're doing is you're contributing to the patient's pain. They actually, their danger system, their alarm system says, oh my goodness, I'm not doing this and that and the other and I need to actually increase my hyper-awareness. <clears throat> so the model that should be put forward in therapeutic uh, neuroscience education would probably decrease biomechanical um, explanations of pain and increase nervous system explanations of pain. And by that I mean explaining to people that 
that pain is not one-to-one, -one, explaining that it's a perception, explaining that your nervous system itself can become sensitized and become the problem rather than the tissue damage. And there are a lot of kinds of uh, simple analogies and things that explain that if you really go through a curriculum on this. But um, I've had many patients that I've helped this way, and I, I don't know if I finished that other thought, is that the studies show that this helps. So a patient comes in like this and... Um, Simply being educated, simply understanding that it's not all in their head, they're not imagining these pains, and also understanding that maybe if it hurts a little, that doesn't mean they're being re-injured, that gives them clarity and allows them to actually challenge the pain perception a little bit and not be frightened, because now it's in the model of, well, it's just my alarm system that's set a little too high. It's not really that I'm tearing the sprain again. It's not really that my disc is going to jump out of my back again. Severing my spinal cord. <clears throat> right. I'm not severing my spinal cord. So, it, so in essence, that that the information, when used the right way, can help people. Uh, their pain actually goes down. Their function yeah. improves. It's interesting. I mean, it's based on this idea that, like, knowledge is power. Knowledge is empowering. I was even intrigued in this book we've been referring to. I mean, like, people with lower education levels have more pain. Doctors have less pain because of their experience and understanding of these things. So, and yet, it that's sort of where people started. When they wanted, when they wanted to tell patients, oh, your disc is bulging, the intention was to provide help, I think, you know, to give them some information as to why they're having back pain. And it's interesting that that information can actually create these catastrophizations, these fears, these fear-based avoidance behaviors. But the education about pain is more effective. You know, so it's it's not always educa more education equals better situation. It's, no, it's like anything else. It's yeah. uh, it, This is what I told my students when I was actively teaching. It's more important to know who has the pain than what kind of pain it is. Uh -huh. It's more than who your patient is than what they're coming in with. The, so like everything, whether you're a Pilates teacher or a dance teacher, or, or the more you know about that person, that specific person's tendency, mm -hmm. the more you can flexibly adjust your education to that person. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so there are yes. some people who come in who are resilient, meaning they're, they have very little fear. Yeah. They're healthy, otherwise healthy. They sprain their foot. It's, it's taking a little longer than they thought. Um, they, they, these people, it's probably okay to give them a mechanical description. It's good, they're going to take it on the fly. It's not a big deal. You get a person who comes in. They've seen several doctors. They seem anxious. They're not sleeping well. No one can help them. Can you help them? You're probably the fine. We I've heard such good things. Can you help me? So there's a there's a particular type of person, and particularly if they come in and say, "Oh, you know, my disc is out. I'm really afraid. If I bend too far forward, it's going to go out again." And I was told that if I move this way, I should never ever move that. Yes. So, so what I'm saying is, you once you do this as a clinician. You can spot these people a mile away to some degree, and you adjust. That person would be the absolutely wrong person to give a mechanical definition to right. because they're going to fixate on it. It's like if a hypochondriac walks into your office. I don't think that's the – I think it's called somatoform disorder now or something. Uh -huh. But if what, <laughs> what you think of as a hypochondriac, you know, you're probably not going to choose – 
to list the 12 things that, that, prob- might, be that might be wrong with them <laughs> because they will fix it on everyone. So it's the same sort of thing like any education. The more you know about who's in front of you, the more you can adapt it. In general, on average, we need to pull away from mechanical explanations and move toward these others. But for some people, it, you could probably almost do anything for them and they're going to get better. Right. Do you, do you think um, when you talk about these these knowing the person um do you think people switch between being these kinds of people i mean i have a a biased idea about this you know i feel like some days i feel secure and confident and comfortable and organized and i can take information and say like oh it's a little sprain it's gonna i'm gonna do these exercises it'll get better and then other days you know you feel stressed you feel overwhelmed you're exhausted there's all these other factors and you just feel like a little prone to fixation, a little prone to obsessing, and then, you know, you're a different type of per- person. Do you think that these people I'll answer switch? it this way. You're not a different type of person uh-huh. just because your stress goes up down a little bit. Uh-huh. I, I put it this way. It's amount of variability. So uh, everyone has a That's slight variability day to day. And in that environment, yes, there can be a little change. And you're, and particularly the amount of pain you feel, like if you didn't get enough sleep or you're having an argument with your spouse, you're going to feel more pain. I think that's absolutely true. But the and I'm not a psychologist, but my understanding is that personality types don't change so much right. and that if you tend to be an anxious person, you're an anxious person. Right. right. Uh, and so uh, when a person comes in, I'm not you know, you might ask them how was your day today or you know, what's going on today, but really the kinds of questions you're asking are you're, you're trying to get some sense of them and listening to them in an acute way to hear what their fears are. Uh And if their fears and what they're saying seem out of relationship to what they're actually experiencing from a tissue level problem, Mm -hmm. then you're more certain, you tend to believe that they are catastrophizing, making uh, unreasonable um, expectations about the future, which are always dismal in their mind, or they simply have fear, so fear avoidance behavior. They're saying, if I do that, I know it's going to hurt, and they haven't done that in six months. You know, uh, so yes, there's some variability. Certainly people feel uh, pain more or less day to day, and people may in fact be open to some degree and and having their belief system change day to day. But personality type doesn't change so much over time, I don't think. No, I think in um, psychology they say, you know, there's state anxiety and And there's trait trait anxiety, right? So if you're a trait-anxious person... That's one thing. If you're not so prone to trade anxiety, you can still have anxiety from time to time. Yeah, but you're not if you don't have anxiety, person. you're probably not alive. Right, right exactly. <laughs> you know, you're not you living. should worry because you're probably dead. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so going back, so going back to this pain thing. I mean, I it's I I keep feeling like I almost have a hold on these ideas, and then I lose it for a second. You know, it's like. Um, Another thing I took away from the therapeutic neuroscience education book was this idea that, like, the person who thinks if they bend forward, they will have back pain. There's also this, like, cognitive thing where in there, somebody has told them, oh, never bend forward, never round your back. We hear, you know, people who have been diagnosed with osteoporosis. Oh, never curve your spine. So then they start to develop this fear of curving their spine. And then is it safe to say that they even start to, like, they interpret more signals as pain because in their brain they've said curving is dangerous. So any feedback they get from their body of like, oh, you're curving your spine or you're leaning, then gets interpreted at their brain 
as pain. Yes, exactly. Right? Someone says, if you touch the third rail in the subway, you will die. Uh, suddenly you don't even want to get on the subway, you know, at some point. Like you, your avoidance behavior gets kicked into such high gear. It's absolutely true. And here, I mean, and here the, I don't know, people are different, but the way I wrap my brain around this, let, let me share you with you uh, how I've wrapped my brain. It was just to be very concrete about this. Mm-hmm. A few concrete things. The, um, when, when you have, when, when you feel a sensation in a nerve, first of all, your nerve, your sensory nerves in your skin aren't so much pain nerves. They are sensory, just sensory nerves. Those nerves can be tripped from lots of things, but mainly temperature differences, mechanical deformation, which means it's stretched or compressed, or chemical things, such if you get an inflammation. So your nerve is sitting there. It's already humming. doesn't mean that it's firing, but it's humming with a little bit of electricity through it at a very low level because it's ready to sense things. If there's no electricity in it, it's dead. So it's humming along through there. You get a mechanical deformation, a temperature change, or a chemical change, and it changes the nerve sufficiently that it trips the alarm of the nerve. It increases above the threshold, the nerve fires. And nerve firing, most of you may remember from your basic physiology, it's an all or none phenomenon. So when the nerve fires, it fires or it doesn't fire. It's sitting there and it fires. When it fires, it sends a message to the spine. In the spine, it connects to another nerve called an interneuron, which is the second order neuron. Uh, so there's a little synapse there, a little break. So chemistry can be involved in that break and mm-hmm. regulate what's happening. You get to the inner neuron and then there's another uh, nerve which takes it up to the brain. So what I'm saying is that the pathway from that sensation of those stimuli up to the brain, there are several links. And at each of those links, the signal can be modified. So when the nerve gets to the spine, the amount of chemicals present at that at that stage, decide whether that message is inhibited or facilitated. If there's more endogenous opiates which say, chill out, nerve, we're not listening to you right now, then the message won't go up. If there are other chemicals which make that synapse be full of transmission, it will go up faster. Now, the thing that regulates those chemicals at that juncture, a couple of things, the brain can actually send chemicals down the nerves to regulate that. Also, how many chemicals are floating around in the environment of your body can regulate that. Um, and then the nerve gets up to the brain and it's interpreted in various ways. So I, for me, it's imp- uh, who understand this when you say wrap your brain around it, it's a little bit like understand that there are many ways that the nerve can be uh, modulated. As, mm-hmm. So the signal getting to the brain is the first thing. And then when it gets to the brain, it's also modulated by thoughts, feelings, memories, and that sort of thing. Right. So that's kind of the concrete way. So the brain is, a, is constantly regulating and modulating things. Your blood system and the chemicals in there are constantly modulating and regulating things. There's, there's amazing... Um, there, I'll tell you some of the most fantastic things that when I think uh, things are really fantastic. <laughs> so, for example, you know, there's the homunculus in the brain, which means there's, a, there's an actual representation of the human body in the brain. So when they do fMRI, they can map out. So if you move your index finger and they do the MRI, they can see the part that represents your index finger in the brain. And they've mapped out this. It's like a little person that represents your body. Of course, your face and your hands are outsized relative to, say, your waist, which has less sensation and less important. But what's amazing is if you take, your, this is all so plastic and changes so rapidly, if you take and tie your two fingers together with tape, within hours, within hours, 
The homunculus in the brain sees that now as one finger. One finger, not two. When you have pain, certainly over some prolonged period of time, the homunculus begins to smudge in the brain. That is to say, the distinct borders of that thing which used to represent your finger becomes blurry. And that's why your pain can spread. So people come in and say, I tore this ligament. Why is my entire foot hurting? Why is my lower leg hurting? It, because the, the, that region that's represented in your brain is no longer distinct. And going back to your question about how people bend forward and they get more signals, it's the same way. If you go to a surgeon and they operate on your shoulder and they say, here, wear this brace, don't move your shoulder for six weeks, what the brain does is it sends out more sensory neurons, more it wants to upregulate. It's saying, where's all that human motion of the shoulder I used to get? I'm not getting it anymore. Mm -hmm. So your brain becomes hypersensitive to motion of the shoulder. Wow. So then when you go to the PT or you go to take off your, your thing to take a shower, oh man, it really hurts yeah. because your brain is so ramped up trying to sense anything. Right. And that's why when you go to PT, like, like the first surgical visit after a normal surgery is progressing well, people almost always feel tremendously better because as a PT, what I do is say, go ahead, move it, touch it, right. you know, right. rub your hands on it. And after a day, they feel so much better just because they've moved it. So the sensation is, is less. Right. And if I could keep running my mouth for one more second, there's one other fantastic thing to tell you. I think the most fantastic thing, which is... Your nerves have these ion channels, these sensors, and all of your nerves, or most, some of your nerves, let's just say, are polymodal, means that they can have a temperature ion channel, or a mechanical stimulus ion channel, or a chemical ion channel, and these ion channels are the things that determine what will trip the nerve, and it's all a non phenomenon. So the nervous system is constantly like every minute you're churning through these ion channels, they breathe, they live, and they die. So your brain is constantly deciding what kind of ion channels you need. If you get injured and there's inflammation and your chemical ion channels get tripped, the brain sends more ion channels to your nervous system. So you're, high, you're much more sensitized now to inflammation. When you have a flu, or the cold, yeah, the, the, uh -huh, yeah. the, the, the body says, oh wait, all my immune cells are developing rapidly. There's something wrong, danger. I'm going to put a lot more ion channels for chemical receptors in my whole body. And guess what you feel? Aches all over your body. Right. So the speed with which, if, if you think it's going to be cold tomorrow, guess what happens? Your brain sends more ion channels for temperature. It is freaky. Yeah. The body is such a highly tuned, alive thing to think that that pain is just tissue damage. Once you understand how what the rapid response and sensitivity changes of the nervous system, it's, you realize it's ridiculous to think that way. Of course. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, let's take this into the, the dance realm here. So... You know, dance is traditionally a field in which pain is almost glorified and can be sort of a, a signal of your devotion and your commitment and your chutzpah to get through the performance despite your broken ankle. And um, so do you find that you still have to do a lot of this pain re-education with um, dancers, because a lot of the pain re-education almost seems like it's geared towards, it's more geared towards these people who tend to catastrophize or have these fear avoidance behaviors. Um, is there still 
a lot of this work happening when you work with dancers? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I understand what you're saying. The if I had to generalize about dancers, they're like professional athletes, uh, and professional athletes have more resilience. They have less fear. They've they've already in their life they challenge their body physically. Most of them, if unless they're you know really young and have, having their first injury, certainly if they're twenty five or thirty and been dancing, they get it already that pain is probably part of what you're experiencing. They're more resilient. Uh, however, I would say there are a lot of babies out there who are dancing, <laughs> and I, I guess I do mean that pejoratively. And by baby, I don't. I, I don't. I'm characterizing them that way, meaning that they, <laughs> they, um, they, their fears often rule them. They don't have experience dealing with setbacks, uh, you know, either through education or, as you said, personality type. They tend to there. Let me put there. There are some hypochondriacs in dance as well. Yeah, I guess that's what I'm really saying. You know, so uh, go back to my previous answer. It depends on who you're dealing with. Generalizing, yes, dancers are tough. Um, but that being said, there's a con- there's a uh, there's an opposite. Dancers are tough, but what they have that the average Joe doesn't have, their identity depends on their body, their paycheck depends on their body. So even though they're generally tough, what I find is when a dancer senses that the level of danger is getting gotten to the part where oh my goodness, I may actually have to stop dancing, mm-hmm. they often kick into high gear like everybody else, and they yeah. often get quite upset. And which is understandable because it yeah. really does affect them right. more. Right. And I think also a lot of dancers, um, some may have studied anatomy, um, but many haven't. You know, I mean, many don't go to college or go later or whatever. Um, and so a lot of the anatomy knowledge that they're getting is through injuries. You know, so there's a lot of... Um, oh, I have this tendonitis and it's this inflammation. You know, they know their Achilles tendon, they know all that, but they don't always have a broader context in which to understand that. They just know about that Achilles tendonitis. They maybe haven't studied inflammation in depth or something. And so anytime they start to get an inkling of that, that pain at the back of their ankle, you know, it's like, oh, that summer that I, ha- I, couldn't, I couldn't take any of my classes at camp because I had such bad Achilles tendon and tendonitis. And then, um, you know, so there, I think there can be maybe a tendency towards that catastrophizing from that perspective, you know, that they, they may know a little bit of anatomy, but they don't know how necessarily how pain works within the body. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think if you can educate those people, I think that's, I think it's, I think I, I didn't really answer your question. Yes, I think dancers can absolutely benefit from this yeah. education. Yeah. Um, I do. The, the thing you're just mentioning to me is absolutely, I think of that as a neurotag in a therapeutic neuroscience education. They talk about this. They give the example in the book of, if you think about your grandmother, you know, if you actually had a relationship with your grandmother, if you think about your grandmother all the sights and sounds and smells, how you treated, she treated you, you may maybe where she lived when you went, so there's, it's the same way when you get posterior tibial tendonitis. <laughs> it's the same way. Where were you when it happened? How much did it hurt? Who cared for you? Who was mean to you? Yeah. All that stuff is part of 
If you have a person think about grandma and you do an fMRI, it's not just one little grandma dot that lights up. Mm -hmm. The entire brain lights up in very mm -hmm. specific ways, which would be different than if you thought about grandpa. Mm -hmm. So it's the same with posterior tibial tenitis you experienced when you were 16 and now you're 24. When something happens to trip the grandma perineal tendonitis wire in your brain, the entire brain will light up like that. Yeah. And, and so... That is what you're fighting against sometime, and it's it's not it's not untrue that if you tore a muscle or or had the tendonitis, there may be a tissue loading truth to the fact that that particular tissue may be a little more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. So it's not as though that's not true, but in my ex clinical experience, eighty percent of that is mostly the neurotag. It's mostly the fear-based thing that's very hard to get rid of. Yeah. Once you've been injured in a specific way, particularly if it was sufficient to stop you dancing or something. Let's face it, you know, we're, we're memory creatures. We have memories for reasons um, yeah. to project them to the future and protect ourselves. So, um, but I think yeah. they've even done studies with memory that you sort of re-excite, you know, just in thinking about a memory, you really re-excite those same yeah. pathways. So, I mean, they've done studies where if the, if the clinician or the therapist uses the word pain, yeah. They have more pain, as opposed to saying, you know, what what's your experience of X? I mean, there's several things. I, I, I try not to use the word pain, uh, you know, when I'm treating. Um, I, uh, I mean, you do sometimes. But, you know, if you experience anything negative or, you know, subversive, let me know. Yeah, right, right, right. Yeah, I notice even in the title here, Therapeutic Neuroscience Education. Right, it's not like pain. I, yeah, it's not pain education. Right. It's really... Um, and then I think also, like, those... So there's this... Um, they talk about other things too. One of the things that caught my attention was the breathing component, you know, cause I, I had this thing that speaking of spinal asymmetries, something in my back where it's really hard for me right now to arabesque to the back on one leg. And the other day, you know, I, I've gotten committed to that. Like it's, that's hard for me right now. And, and I'm really, I'm trying to solve it, but I'm also sort of attached to it in a certain type of way. And I even noticed the other day in ballet class, like, oh, I really like hold my breath and sort of say like, oh, here comes that discomfort. Here comes that inability. And like, oh, if I just like breathe normally and I just imagine it feels better, well, my leg maybe still is low. <laughs> like, there might still be a mechanical issue there that I haven't solved with my positive but the thinking. Sense, but the but center sense, experience see, is different. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, I think it's the same with pain. In yeah. other words, you get, uh, people begin to anticipate like one of the things I say to patients, don't don't go looking for pain in your body. Mm -hmm. You know, let it tell you. Uh -huh. You know, you know, don't don't send out the the scouts to look in, right. for pain right. in your body. Trust ne me. Never if, have a full body scan. Don't. <laughs> well, you can do a full body like scan, find but don't. Things you don't, don't want to know are there. <laughs> Scanning your body's fine for awareness and what is the sensation. No, no, but I mean in a machine. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Just don't go looking for pain. Right. You know, um, because you'll find it. Yeah. If you, you, I'm asking anybody, if you think my right foot is hurting, my right foot is hurting, my right, if you think that long enough, it will hurt. Right. It will right. hurt. Um, and maybe even that's something that's happening in dance because we are fortunately moving a little bit away from that no pain, no gain mentality and we are trying to um I think we have succeeded in getting more dancers to understand that like they should care for their bodies for the long haul and they shouldn't just fight through things and they should if they're injured they should rest when they need to and not just 
persevere at all costs and, you know, shorten their career. But maybe we've gone, you know, we, we have to be cogniz- conscientious not to go too far. It's a balance, right? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, people my and I'm 61, so people my age were in dance companies. There were no physical therapists. Right. You know, people would go on a 10-month tour around the United States, you know, eight people in a Volkswagen. <laughs> I mean, you know, and they danced hell or high water. Right. Now, I'm not suggesting that's the ideal, but what I am suggesting is that uh, um, you, it's a balance. You, you want to talk to people and have them be perceptive, uh, but you can go too far. For example, no pain, no gain. Certainly, pain is not required for gain in all cases, but I would argue that pain is required for gain in some cases. Uh-huh. For example... If delayed onset muscle soreness, if you, if you don't have, if you're working your quads really hard and they don't burn, you're probably not working them hard enough if what you're going for is increased strength. Right. And if they don't stay sore for a few hours, you probably didn't push them enough. If you're a healthy person who has no contraindications and you're trying to gain strength. So, so yes, there are limitations. You know, we, we're pulling back from no pain, no gain. But in fact... Um, some things hurt, like the current, the current thinking for tendinopathy. Uh-huh. If you have a patellar tendinopathy, one of the few things that's been researched that shows it actually works is you do an eccentric squat on one leg up to a 4 to 5 out of 10 pain. It hurts. Right. But guess what? Right. Over time, that tissue remodels. That's at one level. So we're assuming that tissue remodels. The other thing, though, is you're telling your brain what? This is not dangerous. Right. This is not dangerous. I've had people come back to me after that and say, you know what? I'm not sure that I'm plie any deeper, but I'm not afraid of it anymore. Mm-hmm. And it feels smoother. It still hurts. You know, so it's, it's a... I see this in the general population so much. I mean, people who have knee pain, and I say like, well, you're really, you're going to have to strengthen your quads. Probably. I'm pretty sure. You know, you're a 60-year-old person. You're a little bit under conditioned. I think you need more quad strength. But... Squats, lunges, that type of action hurts their knee. And I've recently taken to saying like, well, I mean, go to the PT and have it checked out to be sure. But other than that, I I think, yeah, it's just going to hurt a little bit until it gets stronger. You just got to, that's what's going to. Well, yes, exactly. I have a patient uh, last week and I'm saying, well, here's the deal. You can either do this and experience a little pain Mm -hmm. and it's quite likely it will stop hurting and you will get stronger. But I can tell you this, if you don't do this, you will get worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you will not be able to squat. If right. you stop squatting, you will lose the ability to squat. Do you want to be able to squat? You know, so right. if you, yeah, so it's like that. It's a choice. But uh, the, the critical part is, you know, and we, in epidemiology of dance injuries, so when you try to figure out if someone's injured, well, how do you define injury? I mean, even that right. is very complicated. Right. So how does the dancer themselves decide if they're injured or not? Mm-hmm. It's a very complicated thing. Uh, the vast majority of, of pain is not an injury. Mm-hmm. It's sort of day-to-day, maybe you had a little micro-tear in a tissue, within a week it'll be healed. You don't need to go to the doctor for that. But making that decision is very tricky business. Um, pain, a, a small variation of pain, so the rules of thumb I use with with people, you know, if you get a one to two out of 10 pain, and by the zero in that scale is zero pain, no pain, the 10 is the worst pain you've ever had in your body at any time in your life. So that's the scale. A one to two out of 10 pain, which comes and goes, you know, within a day or two, I don't think you need to worry about it. Mm -hmm. But deciding when you're injured and what pain is important is, it's both science and art, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, and I mean, we read your bio at the beginning. So, I mean, you are qualified to help people through this. I mean, I feel like as a Pilates teacher, a master's in dance science, like I, I don't have that same authority. Like I would feel a little more reticent to, like I said, with the squats, okay, I'm pretty sure your knee pain is because you need more quad strength. Let's work on that. But in a lot of cases, I wouldn't feel comfortable saying, oh, it's okay. It's just pain. Pain happens. It's maybe your body. You know, well, so I understand. You know, you, well, like, I th- here's the way I would suggest. If you're, yeah. uh, here's what I think you can do is general rules. You can say to people, I want you to do just a little more uh-huh. and see how it feels. Uh-huh. And then I want you to see if it's if you get a one to two out of ten pain doing a little more. And by a little more, I mean a little deeper into your squat, mm-hmm. maybe doing two or three more reps, maybe adding another five pounds of load. In other words, some 5% increase, mm-hmm. roughly, mm-hmm. of whatever you already know you can do. Okay. And then see what happens. If you have a little bit of pain and it goes away by the next morning, do it again. Okay. If it goes away by, do it again. Do that for a little while and then increase it again. However... If it makes you a little flared up, pull back. You know, right. pull back to where you were and then try it again later. Um, or try for two or three days and make sure that it is genuinely increasing. I would, I would say, again, generally speaking, that, that I don't know about dancers. Dancers, I think you're right, can push. You might sometimes have to hold them back. But for non-dancers, uh, you have to give them very specific guidelines about how to move forward. And even though you're not a physical therapist, you know, honestly, the, most of the Pilates teachers I know, uh, forgive me, colleagues, have, probably have a better <laughs> eye for human movement than the physical therapist. They don't have a lot of the, the background knowledge. But So I would think if your eye is saying, this person is in good alignment, mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I'm asking them to just push a little bit more and be aware of what they're feeling and report back to me the next time. And if, I mean, you're not going to tear... Yeah. If you don't do power moves, power right. moves are different. So power right. moves, jumping, running... Right. Plyometrics. Plyometrics. Like that. yeah. That's different. Yeah. I think that is always a good marker is like, well, is what I'm asking you to do more or less demanding than your day-to-day life? You know, like when somebody says, oh, but I can't do that with my shoulder. It's like, but you carried groceries home, you know, or I had a dance student who couldn't lie on the floor and do basic Pilates exercises because it gave her back pain. And I said, but, you know, this is much less demanding than your contemporary dance class. Do you think that maybe it's just that when you lie on the floor and breathe and attend to your body, you notice all the pain that's there? You know, I think the student genuinely had an injury, you know, so it's like, I'm sorry, but this is definitely less demanding to your body than your ballet class. So I think we're going to have to override. We're going to have to work through that pain somehow. Right, right. I think you're exactly right. Grandma, mom, back. Okay, that is kind of an intense activity. Right, right. Let's reevaluate if we're going to do that. That's that's what I'm doing all the time. When patients come to me, I'm basically trying to see if I can mechanically deform tissue or activate muscles to recreate the pain. If I can't, I know I'm in some other arena. Right. You know, and I have to right. be more cautious. No, is maybe it's a neurotag of pain. Maybe something happened in the world when she was lying on the floor. She doesn't like to lie on her back. Right. I mean, you don't Bad know. memory, yeah. Yeah, you right. have to explore right. that. That's right. right. But but you're right. Sometimes telling them, well, this is mechanically not that stressful. I mean, that's if people are convinced their back is hurt, the last thing you want to do is tell them that they don't have pain. You right. never do. Because right. first of all, that's wrong. It's a lie. You have no idea whether they have pain or not. But you're trying to explore with them why something which is not mechanically stressful 
yeah. is hurting them, yeah. right? And I think it's also like to feel comfortable in empowering your patient to to sort of do that work for themselves as opposed to, you know, healing them with your touch, you know, that it's... You definitely don't want to be healing people, yep. trust me. Yep. I mean... <laughs> I know that there's a lot of that in our in 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 therapeutic uh, parlance, but I think really the prof- you know uh, you never take credit for healing someone. First of all, you're not doing it unless you're God uh, or some omni- omniscient person. What you're doing is facilitating an environment in which natural healing can occur. The other thing is, if you take credit for the healing, trust me, then you have to take credit for all the pain, <laughs> and you you don't want to be that person. Trust me. <laughs> So there's a certain sort of hands-off, professional distance you really do need to maintain mm-hmm. at all times. Yeah. You're there to help the person help themselves. Absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Is there anything important that you feel like we didn't touch on that you want to make sure that we cover thinking of your colleagues and friends and um, people in the dance world? Um, just, I, I think the primary thing is, is to remember that tissue damage is not directly related to pain and that pain is a perception, and that that's influenced by your, your memory of things and your thoughts and your beliefs about it. And the trick is to be somewhat more resilient with your experience of pain while still paying attention to and respectful of when you get high levels of pain and pulling back from that. Mm-hmm. And that's sometimes best to be talked over with a therapist or a Pilates teacher. You can just have that conversation, so to probe that and see what people mm-hmm. are feeling. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Oh, you're welcome. It was fun. Yeah. And um, maybe we'll talk again about spinal asymmetry. Oh, sure. Okay. On behalf of Marissa and myself, Ellie Kushner, I want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Like what you hear? Go to iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. We'll be releasing bi-monthly episodes with an emphasis on exploring 360 degrees of health and wellness for dancers. Have questions or want to get in touch? Email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye!